can I? So, this is full disclosure. Is that things have kind of changed as the days went on, and and uh, we'll see how it goes tonight. But um, we're going to do a very interesting one that we don't really ever think about it pointing to Christ. When we hear about this one, we have one specific thought. We have one specific antidote of life that we um, take from this. But once you see um, how this really unfolds, it's amazing. I remember, I remember when we were going through this at our church. It was one that amazed. It was like a majority. We were amazed with this one. The next type in shadow is maybe peculiar. You may know him as someone who had possibly one of the worst days recorded in the Bible. You may know him as losing ten children. I'm talking about the story of Job. You're like, wait a minute. How does, how does Job going to point to Christ? What, what do we know about Job? If, if, if we were to say, hey, give me the brief rundown of what the book of Job is about. What would our answers be? Anybody got any thoughts? Suffering. Staying strong in the middle of suffering. Staying patient in the middle of suffering. All true. We can't deny that. That truly is really what it, it's talking about. But as you see the story unfold, it's pointing to someone who will come and who will suffer more than Job. We know him as the suffering servant, talking about Jesus. And we're going to see some instances that some of the words that were spoken in this book, Christ will come and fulfill on the cross. And what Job does at the end is what Christ does on the cross. Who would have thought? And we look at Job and we say, man, he suffered. The one thing that we have to know before we know anything else is that no one suffered more than Jesus Christ. No one. We, we, we look at Job and we're like, oh man, we feel sorry for this guy. How could this be? Uh, it was un, unjust. And how, how could this all come to play? There is no one who suffered more than Jesus Christ himself. And he suffered for the believer. He suffered for those who would put their faith in him. He suffered for us. And this is what we're going to pick up in this story. Chapter 1 of Job. We see that tells us that in the man of Oz, there was a man named Job, and he was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Now we see this term blameless. That does not mean that he's perfect, because no one who's ever been born is perfect. But what this does mean that he is living a life of integrity. He is living a God-fearing life. He is doing his every, everything he can do to honor God in his life. I think it's interesting that that word comes into play, because the children of God are referred to as blameless uh, in the eyes of God because of justification. We see that he has seven sons, three daughters. We know the story. Look, into this, look at these possessions that he has. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And we know the story, but we'll pick up where it starts to really lay hold of what we're going to talk about here. And it says this in verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where 
do you come? Then Satan answered, the Lord has said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Let me say this that I think has to be said. The devil, Satan, is not omnipresent. That changes everything. Think about that. You ever heard a church say this? We bound Satan this Sunday. Well, my question is, why'd you let him go? And if you had him bound, why didn't you call the church down the road and say, hey, we got him? Satan is not everywhere all the time like God. He is a creature. He's a fallen creature. He's a fallen angel. There's only one being that has the ability and the attribute of being omnipresent, and that is God. Satan is not everywhere at all times. Satan is not able to persecute you and then persecute somebody in China at the same time. That goes against everything that we've ever been taught. Well, Satan tempted me, and then I fell. That's not true. Satan is not omnipresent. If he's omnipresent, then he's elevated to the level of God. He's a creature. This is what made God's holy. He's holy. Now, that changes things. So you're like, well, if Satan's not everywhere, what happens? Well, Satan also has demons. They can tempt you. They can masquerade in angels of light. Or we can go to the book of James, and James says that what? We, are, we sin when we're tempted and drawn away by our own evil nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Everything that we're born into is with an evil disposition. We just read this in Romans 3 on Sunday night. There's no one who does good. Not one outside of Christ. Then you're like, well, wait a minute. You don't understand. I give to charity. I, I help this little old lady across the road. How can God tell me that before Christ no one does anything good? Well, because there's two qualifications to make something good. You have to be under the, the uh, coverage of the law. It has to be under the rules of God to be, number one, good. But then the other motive that has to be known is that, the motive itself. If it is not for the honor and the glory of God, then it is not good. So there's no one who does good outside of Christ. Paul even laments this in Romans 7. He says, there's nothing good in me except for God. So here's what we know. Satan is not everywhere at all times. That changes things. He's not an omniscient, omnipresent being. I just wanted to say that up front. And then we see that he has to ask for permission to what to do. Why would he do that? We're going to find that he comes to God and he asks for permission to tempt and test Job. We see the same analogy. We see the same language in the New Testament where the, the demons are asking for permission. That, that We see that there's an authority that God has. He is a creature, Satan is, and God has rule over him. God is sovereign over it all. All of his creatures. And we see this, that, that here is Job, this blameless, sinless, or not sinless, blameless, upright man, and here he comes in verse 8. Listen to what the Lord said. Have you considered my servant Job? I want to stop. And we're going to talk a little bit about suffering tonight. Who here has ever suffered in life? <laughs> right? Yeah. Hello. And what is our thought with suffering? 
This is what we have to be rooted in. We say, well, if suffering has happened, therefore, God can't be involved in it, and therefore, I'm doing something wrong, and there's punishment. And all those things, punishment, you know, we get punished for sin. There's things that happen, yes. But here comes Job, and here comes Satan, and here comes Satan to God, and he says this to Satan. God does. Hey, what about Job? Hey, have you thought about him? Tell him this to Satan. Why would he do that? Why would God say, have you thought about Job? Well, because here's the thing that we have to know. And we're going to learn this tonight as we see this. That there's no one who suffered more than Jesus. And Jesus says the student is not above the master. If Christ suffered, then we will suffer. That's a guarantee. We're not above him. And if Christ will suffer, which we'll read here, then we can expect it. But it's always with a purpose. Here's why the sovereignty of God means everything. When suffering comes to the believer, it is not something that we have to wonder what in the world is happening. My world is in utter chaos. I don't know what the point of all this is. We can rest assured and take heart to know one thing tonight, that it is for the glory of God that all it takes place. It is for your betterment as a believer that all suffering takes place. It is for him and his glory and his majesty to be shown, and it is for you and I to be transformed into the image of God Almighty. Isn't that better to know that Christ suffered? And Satan is asking permission, and God says, you can do this. Yes, you can. There's God's sovereignty rules over all the earth. There's a, there's a quote, uh, a, a, an article in the Westminster Com uh, Confession of Faith, and it says this, God did from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. How many times have you heard it? Nothing comes in your life except it comes across the front desk of God first. God ordains everything that comes to pass. That's what sovereignty is. Like we mentioned a couple weeks ago, if there's one maverick molecule that's floating in the atmosphere, then I can't lay my head and sleep tonight. Because if there's one molecule, as R.C. Sproul would say, if there's one molecule that is floating out of control in this vast universe, then I can't trust the promises of God because he doesn't have it all under control. If he's got a variant here, how will I know there's not going to be a variant somewhere else? You could take and you could go to the farthest reaches of the universe. We've got these new images, right, that show unbelievable pictures. You could go to the farthest universe, and you could go to the farthest distance of this, all that we know, and you could go to the, to the farthest uh, star or whatever it may be, and you could, you could drill down into that. You could take the most microscopic molecule of that, and it's there because God knows it's there, and because God put it there, and it will stay there until God says otherwise. So when suffering comes, we have to know that it's for our good. And it's for his glory. That's what we're going to learn tonight. So here we go. He's blameless. He's an upright man. This is the first thing I want to show you here is that Job was a servant of God. 
We see this in verse 8. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Now we know that Job is going to be pointing to Christ. So we have Job who's a servant of God. And then we go to Isaiah 52 which and 53, which this is the, uh, this is the passage, passage of Scripture that the Jews uh, pretend is not here. They, they call it the dark chapter. Uh, they don't want anything to do with this because it speaks about a Messiah. But in chapter 52 of Isaiah, we see this in verse 13, and this is important. He says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He's talking about Jesus. In, in the Hebrew here, this translates into what we call Ebed Yahweh. It is meaning the servant of God. That is, Jesus is coming to fulfill this mission. He's the servant of God the Father on a mission. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and is formed more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what he has been told, they will see. What has not been told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. What the point of this is, is that Jesus is referred to here as the servant of God. Now, we know that in Isaiah 53, if you look over the heading, most likely it's going to say the suffering servant. Because Jesus was the one who would suffer the most. Job, yes, we know everything that happened to Job. He lost his livestock. He lost ten children. He had boils on him. He had a wife that said, curse God and die. He had all the world coming against him. And we look at Job and we say, man, that's a lot. But conversely, we don't look at Christ and say, what you did for me. What you suffered for me. What Job will suffer, it tears our heart out. We say, oh my goodness. And no one is going to suffer more than Jesus. And who sent him to suffer? It was God the Father who said, you're my servant. And it pleased the Father that he would suffer. It pleased him that he was stricken. It pleased him that he was bruised. And it pleased him that he was wounded. See, we think of suffering as something, this thing that has to be avoided at all costs. And we run away from it and we don't want it. But here we have the picture of the Father sending the Son to suffer more than any human ever has. And it pleased him. It was what was going to bring redemption. It was going to be the thing that saved mankind. We're going to read this here in Isaiah 53. We'll just read through it here. He says this, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. And then here we come. Look at this sorrow and this misery and this suffering that comes. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Let me say something real quick on that. They've done studies on this, and they've done this in, like, in big corporations. And I was listening to a, 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 a preacher who was giving these seminars at some of these big um, factories and to the higher-ups on you know proper etiquette and management in the workplace and he said one of the biggest complaints he got was from people of 
what they would consider lesser job status. And he would watch as this would go on, and he said that he would be watching and because they would have complaints, and he would go watch. And what he would see is this, that if um, there would be someone of high-ranking status and someone else of high-ranking status came in, they'd get up, they'd make eye contact, they'd go, how you doing? But if the janitor come walking by, or they met the janitor in the hallway, a common theme that they kept seeing was this. Head down. Don't want to look at you. Who, who are you? You don't want to look at you. And that was happening in the workplace. That was something that workers were saying. They're like, these people don't look at us because we're nothing to them. And now we have this passage of scripture. It says that like one who men hit their face from. They didn't want to look at him. There was nothing about him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. So think about Job and everything that he's going through, the man of sorrows and struggles. Listen to this. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. He just didn't carry the sorrows of just one person. He carried the sorrows of all. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Do you see what just happens there? We automatically assume he's being punished of God. We automatically assume because all this is happening that he's done something wrong and everything's coming against him. This is what we assume. But he was pierced through, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of, for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Continues, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a, with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. You see what just happened? The Lord was pleased to crush him. Because there was purpose in this suffering. There was good that was going to come out of this suffering. So now we're like, God can't bring suffering in my life. And what do we say? What's the first thing that humankind utters and it comes just screaming out of our mouth when things don't go the way we want it to set to go y'all know it that's not fair they're not suffering why me god i've been faithful to you i go to church that's not fair i pray I've been faithful to you all my life, and now you bring this on me. And not just this, you continually bring suffering on me. It's like before I even get ahead, you've got another thing on me. And look, the wicked, they're doing great. That's not fair. You know the story of the prodigal son? I personally don't think it should be called the prodigal son. Because the story's not about the prodigal son. The story is about the brother. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he's telling the Pharisees that they're like this brother. And you know what the whole point of that older story, the older brother in that story is? 
He wants the pomp and the circumstance. He wants all the praise, but he doesn't want the Father. And what is he saying? He says, listen, I've been here with you all this time, but now you give him a party? I've never left your house, but you give him this? You know what he's saying? That's not fair. That's what we do. We have the older brother syndrome. We see this all the time. I mean, I've seen it a million times just in life. It's like this. You will have the, the godly Christian mother who comes to church, and she tries all of her life to have a child, but she can't. And then she sees someone who goes and lives a life of promiscu uh, promiscuity. And then before you know it, they've got one child, two child, three children, and the, go the godly woman who wants the child is barren. What do you say? That's not fair. Do you know how I know we don't know who God is? That we utter the words, that's not fair. God owes us absolutely nothing. Zero. Acts 17 tells us that. We talked about this on Sunday. If God, if you woke up tomorrow and you were in hell, what would your response be? Would you say, God, you were perfectly just that I'm there? Perfectly just that I'm there. Or would you say, I don't deserve to be there? If we can't say that we, by our own merit, deserve to be in hell, then we don't understand who God is. If we, under, if we think that we are owed everything by God, then we don't understand who God is. Would you say his plans are perfect? Yeah, it's the only thing that can come from a perfect God. We did an attribute the other day. It's not on there because we did it online. But it was the goodness of God. Do you know that goodness is an attribute of God? Even when the quote-unquote bad is going on in life, it is goodness of God. Think about this. That God, he doesn't just have a characteristic of good. The Bible says that he is good. So if he is good, the only thing that can come out of him is what? Good. That doesn't look good to us. And we may not understand the good. But there is nothing bad or evil or wicked that can come out of a good God. It says in James 1, it says that he, is, he doesn't have shifting shapes or he is all light. And every good gift comes from God. But we don't look at the suffering as good. We don't look at the suffering as a way that he is sanctifying us and bringing us to his image. They asked Michelangelo how he was able to, to, to make this, the sculpture uh, of David. You know, that big fancy David, that was the one that's very popular. And they said, how did you make it look like David? You know what his answer was? Took away everything that wasn't David. That's what God does through trials. He makes it to where we grow in our faith and we grow in our knowledge of him and we hold to his word and all those trials the Bible says are producing in us a weight of glory that will only be fully understood on the other side of eternity. See, we've got to know who God is. If God is good, then the things that come in our life, the tests, the trials, the situations, they can't be bad if they're from God. Remember this, the verse that we love to quote, Romans 8, 28? I know that all things work to good. For good for those who love him and those who are called according to whose purpose 
his purpose. He's going to get it backwards. He is good. And if he brought suffering on every one of us until the day that we take our final breath, if we think that that is unfair, then we truly don't know who God is. He's not a God who owes us anything. And the fact that he shows mercy once is more than we deserve. He is suffering, and it pleased the Father to see him suffer. To crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring, he would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear the iniquity, their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I just wanted to read that. I wanted to upload that at the start, put it up front, because Job is going to suffer. Yes, we can't deny it. But it is pointing to one who would suffer more than anyone that would ever suffer. And it pleased God to have him suffer. Sometimes we don't understand that. But the Father is pleased because it would bring a better end, a better, better result. So we see that Job was a servant of God, and Jesus is referred to as Ebed Yahweh, the servant of God. We also see something interesting that happens in chapter 2. We're, we, we're just gonna, we got a few here, and I want to get to the very end quickly. Look what happens in chapter 2. We are told in chapter 1 that Job is allowed to be tested by Satan with certain parameters um, because Job thinks that if you really put it to Job, he's going to curse God and die, or he's going to curse God. He's going to denounce him, curse him to your face. That's what he says. Only when things are going good will the Christian trust and believe in God. That's what is being accused here. And you know what? Sadly enough, that's the way it looks like a lot of times. Doesn't it? Something happens. Something miserable happens. What do we do? We stay away from God. We stay away from church. We get angry with him. We get upset with him. We get mad at him. This is what Satan's leveraging. He's saying, listen, you put it to Job. <laughs> He's not going to be so kind to you. God says, here's what you can do. Sets the parameters up. And then we see that in chapter 2, he is, uh, Job is given these uh, horrible, um, these boils, sores from the sole of his foot to the top, crown of his head. And then he took, in verse 8, he took a posture to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. So not only does he lose all of his family, lose all of his livestock, then he has these painful boils that are from top to bottom, and they are so um, painful on him that he takes broken pottery, and he starts to scrape them, and starts bleeding, and he starts wanting them off his body so bad. And here, here we see this picture. That Look what happens in verse number 10. He says, but he said to her, his wife is saying, just curse God and die. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. If we could get this uh, next little part, it would really change us. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversary, adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, the Bildad, the Shuhite, 
and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together and come to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Now, look what is happening. We've built the stage that Job's a servant. He suffers. No one's going to suffer more than Christ. Look what this tells us in chapter 2, verse 12. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him. Isaiah 52, we were just there. We're going to go somewhere else. But in Isaiah 52, verse 14, what does the Bible tell us? It says, his appearance was more marred than any human being. You know what that means? He was unrecognizable. Now we have this Job who's the servant of God who's suffering. And now that he's in so much torment and so much pain and so much affliction that his friends come to him and they don't even recognize him. Why would that, why would that be in there? Because it's pointing to a greater servant of God who would suffer the most and that he would come to a point in his life where he would be unrecognizable. And we see this really pick up in Psalm 22. Listen to these words to describe Christ on the cross. And it makes Job's suffering seem like, or it makes Job's suffering seem like nothing. Remember, Job says they didn't even recognize him because of the state that he was in. In chapter 22, verse 13, listen to what it says. This is prophesying about the death of Christ on the cross. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Man. Anybody ever dislocated a joint? Yeah. Can you imagine every joint in your body? All my joints. Out of place. You know that the, the tradition says that they would they would have the nails of the cross at the very end of the beam. They would have it to where it would have to have something to be done to reach those nails. Not only would he be beaten and scourged and whipped and hit on and spit, and we know all the things that he went through. But when he even got to the cross, that they would stretch out his arms, and his arms wouldn't be able to reach the nails. Most of the time, is this the way the crucifixion went? So what would they do? They would take both arms. And they would pull, and they would have to dislocate the shoulders to get the hands to take the nails. I've done therapy. I've been outpatient for over a decade. I will tell you this. You throw a shoulder out, it is not something you want to keep doing. It can be painful. Can you imagine just being pulled to the point that your shoulders are out of place? That all your bones are out of joint as... It is told to us in Psalm, the book of Psalm here. He continues on. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare up at me. His skin is so destroyed from his body that not only are all his bones out of place, he says he can count them. His flesh is ripped. There is no suffering that Job will ever go through in life that will, that will equal the suffering that our Christ did. And why did he do it? He was sent by the Father. 
He was the servant of God to suffer. And there was a purpose behind the suffering because the suffering was going to bring something good. And we can be rest assured that all the suffering in our life will do the same thing for those who are believers in God. The Bible tells us that his body was unrecognizable. You could count his bones. His flesh was ripped. His bones were out of joint. He said his body was more marred than any human being. Just like Job was unrecognizable to his friends as Christ was on the cross. The Bible gives us vivid imagery that his body was more marred and unrecognizable than any human that ever lived. See, Job is setting this picture of one who would suffer because God allowed the suffering. But there was good that was coming. Remember last week? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is God who's saying, go test him because there's good coming. Job. His faith will come forward like a refiner's fire. And I can't ever talk about a refiner's fire without sharing the story. There was a, a, a pastor at church who was preaching on this subject of refiner's fire we find in the book of Zechariah. And, and it's basically this, this metal working, right, where they, they would go to the blacksmith and, and this is where they would do the refiner's fire and they would heat it up and they would, you know, mold it into what they wanted it to be. And, and this, this pastor was preaching on the refiner's fire one Sunday and this lady in the congregation, she had some questions. She's like, I don't even know what this means. What does that even mean? So she went to her local blacksmith. She said, sir, we just spoke on this. And um, would it be okay if I just watched you? Afternoon, see what you do? See what this refiner's fire is all about? I said, sure, go ahead. I said, you just stand over there and if you got any questions, just ask me. So he grabbed the metal that he's working with, he grabbed the tools, and he takes the metal and he sticks it in the fire. She's watching. She's asking some questions. First question is, well, does it matter where you put it at? I see different colors of flame here. Does it matter where I put it at? He says, it absolutely does. To get the results that I want, to get it to be moldable, I can't put it in the coolest part of the flame. It won't work. He's like, I've got to put it in the hottest part of the flame. If I'm going to have this thing molded into the way that I want it to mold, it has to be the hottest part of the fire. She's like, okay. She stands back. She keeps watching. She said, she asked a few more questions. She says, I've noticed something. She says, every time I ask you a question, you never look at me. Like, I know you're not trying to be rude, but... Is there a reason that you don't look at me? Your eyes are constantly on this that you have in the fire. Why don't you look at me? His eyes never turned to her. You know what he said? I can't turn away from this. Why can't you turn away from it? He said, because I have to know the exact moment to take it out. If my eyes are off of it and I take it out too soon, it does not mold. If I take it in there and I leave it in there too long, it burns it and it doesn't do what I need it to do. So I constantly have to put it in the hottest part of the fire. I constantly have to keep my eye on it and I have to know the exact time to take it out. And she said, my last question, sir, how do you know when to take it out? And you know what he said to her? He said, when I can see my reflection in it. Tell me that's not God. His eyes are never off of you. His eyes are not distracted. 
And it may feel like the hottest trial and struggle and suffering that you could ever be going through. But rest assured, his eyes are never leaving you. And when you are able to reflect the image of the one who has put you in, then he will take you out. You know what that's called? Sanctification. We're becoming more like Christ. Here's my question. If you suffered every day for the rest of your life, but the suffering allowed you to be more conformed to the image of God, would you do it? That's where, we, that's where it stops, right? We're like, I don't know. Well, I don't know. But know this, believer, that if you are a child of God, there's a purpose behind all suffering. Job is not going to go through this for, no, for nothing. He's pointing to what Christ is going to do for us. And he's going to be rewarded in the, in the flesh here, but he's pointing to something greater. And I will tell you this, that it is working for the betterment of you because it's glorifying God. And if you can be conformed to the image of God through every trial, as hard as it may be, that our cry as a Christian would be, command what you will and give what you command. Put me in the hottest fire. I trust you. This is why theology brings praise. Because if you don't know that God is good, and you don't know there's purpose in suffering, then you get angry. And it doesn't mean you won't get angry. I'm not saying that. But you will doubt. And when bad things happen, your, your praise will begin to lower. And when good things come, your praise will be higher. But if you have the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God is consistent. Therefore, your praise through everything is consistent. That's why that you, if you don't know a whole lot about God and your theology is really low and you're just riding the emotional wave, your life will look like this. This will be your life. God is with me. God is not with me. God is with me. God is not with me. Job is suffering. He's unrecognizable. As Christ would be on the cross, unrecognizable. As we speed along here, we see in Job chapter 5 that Job has something interesting happening to him. He is taunted by his friends. He's going through this trial. He's unrecognizable. And it says, he says this in verse, five, or verse 1 of chapter 5. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer me? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? So he's saying, who are you going to turn to? Will anyone hear you? Will anyone cry out to you? When you cry out, will anyone hear you? And we have this same situation when Christ is on the cross. In Matthew 27, verse 43, they are taunting Christ. They're saying, oh, if he's God, save himself. Cry out. Maybe someone will come and take him down. He saved others, apparently. Let him save himself. So you see this whole picture. Job, yes, it's suffering, but it's pointing to the greatest suffering servant of all time. Suffering came upon him by God. Jesus was uh, smitten by God. He was stricken by God. He suffered. He was unrecognizable. His friends are taunting him. He's, he's, he's told to cry out for help. This is happening to Jesus in his ministry and on the cross. And in chapter 13 of Job, we see these attributes or these things, these characteristics that are in the story of Christ coming here in this story of Job. In chapter 13 of Job, he says this, and see if you can think about when this may be paralleled in the crucifixion. He says, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? That gives me goosebumps. 
But because you know who else uttered those words? The greatest suffering servant on the cross. Job is saying, why, God, have you hid your face from me? You are supposed to be good, and you are supposed to be loving, and now you have allowed this to come in my life. Where are you at? You've hid your face. And when Jesus is on the cross, in Matthew 27, verse 46, he utters these words. It's the double. Eli, Eli, which means my God, my God. He was a suffering servant. The Father sent him. Job was crying, why'd you hide your face? And here comes Jesus, and he says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I surmise that the physical pain was not the greatest torment and the greatest suffering of Christ. The greatest suffering was that moment when he takes on the sin and the wrath of God is poured out. And the Father turns his back. And we say, how could God ever pour out wrath on us? Well, he did it to his son. Don't think that he won't do it to a fallen creature. Job is saying, why have you turned your face from me? Jesus on the cross says, I'm your suffering servant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see these parallels that are just running through Job? They're not just about one man. They're not just about one person and be strong in, in suffering. It is. Be strong in suffering. Know that God has got you in suffering. Know that he's good in suffering. Know that he is working a purpose in suffering. But know this is pointing to the one who would suffer and bleed to rescue us. In the hour that Job needed his friends, they abandoned him. And we know that when they come to take Christ, what happened? They abandoned him. There was no one. They all left. Peter, Peter was deciding that he was going to be good and follow from a distance until it got really sketchy. And then he would deny him. Job had false charges brought against him. In Job 22, we, we see that his friends decide that they have now come up with a reason that they're suffering. And maybe you've thought this. Maybe that they're suffering because of this or because of this or that. And, you know, back in the, the biblical time, they had this theory that if someone was ill, if someone had a disease or someone was sick, it was because they were sinful. And we see this in John chapter 9 where the blind man's there. And, and the disciples come up and they say, why is this guy blind from birth? He says, was it him or did his parents sin? What is his answer? Neither. Why was this man born blind? So the glory of God may be manifest in him. Can you imagine all of his life? Why, God? Why am I blind? Why can't I see? Why this? Why that? God, that's not fair. Why? 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 And God comes and Jesus says this. Here's why. Because I'm a sovereign, holy God. And I do as I please. And he was blind. Not because I'm not fair, but because I'm good. And he was blind so that I could be glorified in it. Every situation in life, every struggle in life, here should be the prayer of the believer. God let you be glorified in it. That's the prayer. 
but we don't know God. So we automatically assume the worst. See, the more you begin to know who God is, that leads to praise. And all through the Bible, if you just go, you want to have a fun search, go Google doxology. And look what happens in the New Testament. Anytime you see doxology, which means praise to God, you know what it's always followed, or what is right immediately before it? Talking about how good God is. Talking about the attributes of God. And their souls can't even comprehend it. They're like, God, you are this. You are holy. You are a majesty. To you be the glory. From, from you are all things. And through you are all things. And to you are all things. To you be the glory. It wells up in our soul when we understand who he is. He suffered in the will of God. And Jesus was a suffering servant who pleased God to suffer. Now I want to get to the main point. We'll end with this. For this story. And I want to share just a couple thoughts if I could. What does this mean? What does it mean that Job suffered? He was called blameless, upright. He was a servant of God. God, the Father, allowed him to be have this on him. He was unrecognizable. He was falsely accused. They taunted him. Sound familiar, right? The greater suffering servant. He suffered in the will of God, as did Christ. What's the point? I'll turn to chapter 42. Because there has to be a point in this. I have read this before. And I want to be really honest with you. I didn't know how to read the Bible. And I missed it. Missed it. And once you see this, as the young man from our church says, once you see it, you can never unsee it. In Job 42, listen to what he says, that, that Jesus, or God, he has said, the Father has said that, hey, so I'm going to stand up. I'm going to answer you like a man. And we see in chapter 40 that mouth, Job's mouth is closed. That's the, that's the reaction of all humankind before the judgment of God. Our mouths are closed. And then he comes to chapter 42, and here's what Job said. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. If you look at this last um, attribute of God, it is called incomprehensible. If we have a God that we can fully understand in all things, we do not have God. Because the finite mind can never understand the infinite mind of God. We say, I want to know everything that God's doing. I want to know everything that he... We can't. Job says, these things are too wonderful for me. I can't figure it out. If you Think about it. If there was a God that you knew everything about, what kind of God is that? He's not holy. He's not holy above us all. He says, these things are too wonderful for me to speak. I didn't know them. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask and you will instruct. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. He says, God forgive me for questioning you. God forgive me for telling you this is what I think should happen in this situation. God forgive me for questioning you. How dare the potter or the clay look up to the potter and say, this is what I think you should do. We do it to the Bible. This verse can't mean that because that hurts my feelings. This verse can't mean that because that doesn't seem right. That's what we do. We look at God and say, how dare you? 
And Job is in ashes and sackcloth here repenting. And here comes the coup de grace. Here comes the final finale. What does Job do that's going to point to Christ? Well, Job's friends have angered God because of the way they have spoken about God and the way they treated Job. And the Bible tells us that God's wrath is on these friends. Sound familiar? The wrath of God is against all unrighteousness and all those who do not believe. The wrath of God is on all that are outside of Christ. That's the wrath of God that is coming. And somebody says, it came about in verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you. It is coming on you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And he tells him, Take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. Listen to what he says. My wrath is on you. I'm not going to listen to your prayer. <clears throat> Let that sink in just for a second. My wrath is against you, your friends. I am going to pour out my wrath on you. So go down here and take this to Job, but I will not listen to you. I will only listen to one. There's only one who can do something now to kindle my, or stop my wrath against you. Guess who it is? It's Job. Who's Job pointing to? Christ, look what happens. And my servant Job will pray for you. He will intercede for you. He will go and pray on your behalf because you are not going to have to do anything that except I accept. You can't bring your filthiness. You can't bring your unrighteousness. You can't come, and I, you can't justify yourself. There's nothing that you can do, so you better hope and pray that I accept Job's prayer. Your hope, your destiny, your fate is in Job's hands. Sound familiar? This is us before the Father. We come condemned. We are in Romans, and we have went through the first three and a half chapters. And I will tell you, we are up to the point of 21, verse 21, and it is an indictment that no one is righteous. No one is justified. No one will stand good before God. We all deserve to be condemned. We all deserve the wrath of God. We all deserve the punishment that is due in our sinful nature. That's the news that is on every human being before they come to faith in Christ. He tells us our, our righteousness is as filthy rags. So please tell me, when it says that no one is ever justified by the law, what would you say in front of a holy, righteous God that would allow you to go to heaven? Because his standard is perfection. That's why the Bible over and over says that everyone who comes to this reality and stands before the judgment of God, you have one response, absolute silence. Here's the deal. These individuals are only going to be forgiven if Job and his intercession is accepted by the Father. Look what happens. For I will accept him, not you. I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So he says, listen, 
Job is going to intercede for you. And I'll accept his intercession. And I will not give you what you deserve. I'm not going to give you what you deserve because of another one. Listen to this in Psalm 103, which is an amazing chapter. One of my favorite verses comes out of Psalm 119. Or 103, I'm sorry. Verse 19. It says this in Psalm 103, verse 19. It says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And this is why we can go to sleep at night. And his sovereignty rules over all. Over it all. But look what happens in verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Remember what they said in Job 42? He will not pay you back as according to your folly because one is interceded. Listen to verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Some versions will say to our folly. It's the exact language. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give you what you deserve? We always say, I want fair. I want fair. I want justice. If you want fair, hell's our fate. This is the most beautiful picture. That his friends stand condemned and they're hopeless. You can bring all the stuff you want, he says, but I'm not going to listen to you. I will listen to one, and it just happens to be my suffering servant who's pointing to the greater suffering servant. And this is how we enter heaven. Because one, the great high priest, the great intercessor, has interceded for us on behalf on our behalf to the Father. And now the Father looks at us and He gives us the righteousness of Christ not because we deserve it, not because we've done anything. We go to heaven on the coattails of what someone else did. That's how we get to heaven. Nothing on us. We are clinging to someone else to get to heaven. And the only way that wrath is kindled is through Job. That Job intercedes for them and they're forgiven. Isn't Job better than what you thought? It's pointing to the suffering servant of God who would intercede to satisfy the wrath that was on us. And if that prayer, if that intercession is not accepted, then we have no hope. How do we know it was accepted? Because he was resurrected. The Bible says that it is impossible for death to be, or sin to, the wages of sin is death. So if there is no sin, there is no death that can hold him. So therefore, it's impossible to hold him. The fact that he was raised again, our justification to intercede for us, is how we know the sacrifice was accepted, the intercession was accepted. And the Bible says this, here's the comfort, that if you are a believer, that Christ right now is interceding for you. Right now. And Hebrews 7.25 says this, He is able to save, how long? Forever. Completely. Why? Because you do good? Nope. He's able to save you forever because he lives forever to intercede for you. The wrath would have been on these friends, except for Job and his intercession.
and the wrath of God is on us except for the intercession in our trust in that. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Job is pointing to. We always make it about us. And there's stuff to learn in here. Do not get me wrong. But Job is pointing to Jesus. And this intercession, all that suffering was leading up to the intercession. And all the suffering of Christ was leading up to the intercession to do away with the wrath of God. But that's not the end. After he intercedes, what happens to Job? He's more blessed. It's like glory has returned. It's like he has been raised from this life of, of, of suffering and he's given double and all this is being um, after the, the intercession it's almost like he is being restored only better and what happens to Jesus after he comes and intercedes for us in his suffering what happens his body is glorified he ascends to the father and it says right now that he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the father he is running the universe. He is sovereign in all of his doing. He, his body was glorified. After he came to intercede, everything was restored. And after Job intercedes, everything is restored. That's pretty cool. He interceded for his guilty friends. He was glorified, raised to heaven where he's reigning and interceding right now the greatest suffering ever was from Jesus or to Jesus from the Father God uses suffering and the most grotesque suffering in all of humanity was the most beautiful thing to the Father I want to leave you with this and then I want to play a little blurb if I can this is where it kind of changes this was laid on my, laid on my mind I hope this is okay to do We're told in Romans chapter 8, we all agree that we suffer. Let us look to Christ as one who suffers more than, that has suffered more than any, knowing it's for a purpose. In Romans 8, we are told that the world is groaning right now and travailing. He says that for, in verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There's always the better glory on the other side of suffering because it is, if it's producing in us righteousness through God and it's bringing us in His image, that's good. But all these sufferings one day will result in the final glorification in heaven. And the Bible says we can't fully understand that until that day. But here's the imagery that you see. When He says in Isaiah 53 and in Romans 8 how He is... It's groaning. And it, it, what we get is this picture of childbirth. I want you to think about this. For those of you who have given birth, and you would be able to speak on this better than me. But from what I hear, it's pretty painful. And there's a lot of hard moments in it. The labor, right? Here's the imagery that the Bible gives us. Is this laboring. That we labor. And that the earth groans in travail. Waiting for the adoption of sons. And then we go back to Isaiah 53 and all this suffering. And the Bible says that it was, it was counted joy. That Jesus sees the cross as joy. He tells us this in Hebrews 12. Listen to this really quickly. Therefore, 
since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every, uh, every encumbrance and sin which easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is this joy? Of this suffering. What is this joy? How can he look to the cross and look past the cross and it be a joy? Here's the imagery. The imagery is one is giving birth. That it is painful. And it is hard. And I can only speak for us. Maybe there's been times where you're like, why? <laughs> why did you do this? Why are we here? Please let the pain stop. I know we had some hard times. You did. I shouldn't say we. <laughs> I'll get in trouble. <laughs> I was there. It was tough. There were times when you say, I can't do it. Ever said that? I can't do this. I can't handle anything else. I can't handle another day. God will stop. I don't think I can give birth. This is too painful. Please, please stop. This is the moaning that is referenced here. This is the imagery. But do you know what happens? Your child is born. And you know what? I can speak for myself. As soon as you lay eyes on that child, do you know what the words that come out of your mouth next are? That was all worth it. I'd do it all again. At the time, it's the hardest thing you can do. You don't think you can go another minute? And this is what it's referred to, this imagery in the Bible. And this is what Christ is picturing on the cross. That, that he can look to the cross and past the cross and see joy. Because he knows the redemption that is on the other side. And as he is adopting sons and adopting daughters, and he is looking to those who would come into his family. Do you know what he would say on the other side of the cross? suffering was worth it. And mark my words, friends, that if you're a believer and you have hardship all of your life and you say, I can't go another minute, just like one glimpse of that child, you say, it's all worth it. One glimpse of Christ. And you know what you'll say? It was all worth it. I'd do it again. Sign me up again. Because one day, we will look at him. And we will understand that everything we went through was for purpose. And everything we were going through was for his glory. And one day, 
Bible says he will take his hand and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there we will be with him forever and ever and ever. And this only happens because someone greater than Job would suffer and intercede and be raised to glory. We have to know who he is. If we don't know who he is, then we can't praise him in the hard. And we can't praise him in the good. And we can't praise him and we do this. Do you want to praise him more? Know him more. That's why it's important that we are taught the sheep food. Because the sheep need the food. That's how they grow. There is more to the story of Job. And I hope you've seen that. This applies to all of us. Because we all suffer. I want to share this thought, please. If we can just do this. I know we got busy days tomorrow, but please, I felt led to do this on the way home. I come across the video today by God's just providence. And let me tell you a story, play you a two-minute video, and here's what I want to do if it's okay. I'd like us all to stand here in a second. I've got our, I've got our worship team here tonight. That's it. That's all we need. We're going to play a song. I want you to think about this phrase. Let me write it down here. Uh, what did I do with it? Here it is. And it goes right along with this. And it simply says, But what do you feel? It's actually not correct. I did that for dramatics. <laughs> That's not what it is. Sorry, Pearlene. <laughs> she writes, I'm sorry. <laughs> it is not, but what do you feel? Have you ever felt like praising God? So what do you do? You praise God. What if you don't feel like praising God? What do you do? You don't? The question we have to ask ourselves tonight, theology leads to worship. But what, this is the real one, write this down, it's okay. But what do you know? Let me tell you a story. Has anybody here ever been ridden with guilt? We all have. Have you ever prayed for something? Like, have you ever just feel like you, you failed God over and over? Maybe the same area. Maybe you've just let him down. There is no recovery from this. We've all probably been there, if we're honest. And maybe you've went and prayed, and you say, God, I'm so sorry. I repent. And your heart is broken. And maybe there's tears. And you get up or you get done praying. And you've got a problem. Because you know what you don't feel? Forgiven. 
Anybody ever experienced that? Let's be honest. And what do we do? Maybe you didn't hear me the first time, God. I am so sorry because I feel like you haven't forgiven me. So please, please forgive me. This happened to an individual. I quote him a lot. His name's R.C. Sproul. He's went on to be with God. He's the editor of that Bible right there. Editor-in-chief. He had a lady from his church come in one day. She was sad. She was heartbroken. She said, Mr. Sproul, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. She says, I've got a problem. I can't get rid of this guilt. I have committed this sin, and I feel so bad. And I have literally prayed to God ten times for forgiveness. And after each time, I, I cry more each time. My heart is broken more each time. I repent, I confess, I ask, and I, wait, I get up, and I'm just as miserable as I was before I went down to pray. What do I do? You know what his answer was? She thought he was going to have this, this answer that she's never heard of before. And he looks at her and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. And I want you to repent. She looked at him and said, Mr. Sproul, I don't think you understand what I'm talking about. I have done that. I've done it ten times. I have prayed ten times, God, forgive me, but I don't feel it. And you tell me that i got to go home and repent? Now for the eleventh time? What do you mean to repent of this time? Tears are running down her face. You know what he says? I want you to go home and repent of your arrogance. Excuse me? I know you don't hear me now because I've been on my face before God. I've cried to him. I have been so humble, anything but arrogant. And now you want me to go home and repent and of my arrogance? That's exactly what I'm telling you to do, ma'am. He says, why don't you think you're forgiven? And she says, I don't feel forgiven. There's the arrogance. He says, ma'am, i got a question for you. When you turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and it says, if you confess your sin, then what happens? Not that you're faithful and just. That's what the cross is important about. He is faithful to the work on the cross. He says those sins are nailed to the cross. He has to be faithful to that because God cannot lie. He's forgiven them. He's nailed them to the cross. He's faithful. What did he say he would do if you confessed? He would be faithful and he would be just and he would forgive me. Do you see your arrogance? Your feelings are higher than God's promise. If you are repentant, and you ask for forgiveness the first time. I don't care if you feel forgiven. Your feelings do not trump God's word. You being feeling, you feel forgiven is a bonus. It's not a guarantee. So what do we do? We despair and we doubt and we say, well, I just don't feel forgiven. Guess what? That's arrogance. I don't want to know what you feel. 
And I don't want to know what I feel. Here's what we have to know. We have to ask ourselves, what do we know? We know that the higher we know about God, it leads us to higher worship and a higher level of livelihood in Christ, a life of Christ. Because if we know who he is, if we know that he's immutable and he cannot change, our circumstances change. But he does not. I would ask you to ask yourself that when you pray or when you doubt or when anything that comes in your life, don't ask what you feel. Ask what do I know and what you know I want to play you a two-minute clip, and we'll do a song. We'll get out of here. I came across this today, and this is a guy named Alistair Begg. He's from Scotland, and I told Taylor, if I could have one thing in life outside of the, the main stuff, I would love to have this guy's accent. I think it's so cool. I mean, you have to listen to this guy because he's from Scotland. And he says this. He, he's telling this, and he says that he was in a church, and it, it kind of— it's edited, so it doesn't do the whole picture, but I'll, I'll give you the preface. He's in a church, and the worship leader comes up, and he says this. How do you all feel today? You ready to worship? How do you feel? And you'll be like, nah. And what he's, I didn't hear you. How do you feel? Worship is not giving God what you feel. It is worshiping him for what he is due despite your feelings. And he says, how do I feel? I just got into it with some guy before I came into church. What do you mean, how do I feel? It's 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm barely walking. How do I feel? I don't want to know how I feel. I want to know what I know. <laughs> Listen to him play this out. Now, we're going to do one song. It's called I Know. Just fitting. This is a song that basically says, you don't answer all my questions. But you're with me. You don't keep my heart from breaking, but when it does, you weep with me. And the final analysis is this. I may not know everything, but I do know one thing. I know that you are good, and I know that you are kind. It's not what you feel. It's what you know, and that only comes from knowledge of God. So bear with me just for a second, and then we'll do this, and, and uh, we'll do this song. I appreciate y'all being here. I hope you've seen Job a little differently. I know we're doing something different tonight. I just I couldn't get away from this. So um, just listen to him here. Ask me what I know. 
Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about His Word. Ask me what I know to be a verity that can deal with my soul. That's what I need. Don't make me sing songs about how I feel. Don't. The silly, repetitive songs again and again. I just want to praise you. Lift my hands and say I love you. You are everything to me. Goodness, at half past eight on a Sunday morning, I'm barely ambulatory. I can't start there. And you want me to say that? I just kicked the dog, and I don't even have a dog. I I, I got argued with someone because they took my parking space. I never had spilled my coffee. I didn't read my Bible. I'm a miserable wretch. And now you want me to start here. How do you feel? I feel rotten. That's how I feel. What do you got for me? The answer, nothing. I got nothing for you. That's why you have to get yourself under the control of the scriptures. That's why it is what we know. The verities of the scriptures which then fuel our hearts and our emotions and lead us on. Hence, praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, Restored, forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing? Okay, now we've got something to say about. For we've been reminded of truth. You've been ransomed. You've been healed. You've been restored. You've been forgiven. You're looking away from yourself. Now you're looking out unto Christ. And it is in this that we have something that fuels our praise. we've all been there. Here's a quote. It says, Worship is not a response to how we feel. Worship is a response to Jesus' worth regardless of how we feel. I don't know anybody's hearts tonight. Your earth and your world may be breaking. <coughs> you may come in and you may smile and you may walk out and you may cry yourself to sleep tonight. But here's what you know. It's not what you feel. You may go home and feel like you are all alone. But what do you know? That he never leaves you. And he never forsakes you. And he's near to those who call on him. And that all things are working together for good. I don't feel that. I don't care. They are. I was thinking about this, that this is our rock. Because your feelings are going to trick you. And they're going to lie to you. And you're going to doubt this. And my mom and dad's pool, they have a seal. Not a real seal. A blow-up seal. And we have come up with this game that we jump off the deck and we try to hold on to the seal. And if you can hold on to it, you win. You know what I do every time? I hit this thing, thinking I've got a hold of it. And before you know it, I am completely underwater. And that's where it is when we try to work on our feelings. But if you could picture this big rock sticking out of that water, and me just in the middle of chaos, storms of life, 
getting off that silly seal and planting my feet on what I know. That's why this is important. And that's why it's everything. And that's why we preach it. And that's why we teach it. And that's why we gotta know who God is. Because he's good. And he's God. And I'm glad he interceded. Suffering's coming, but it is for good. Praise be to God. Does anybody have anything on their hearts or their minds or questions about Job or anything tonight? Anything they want to share? Any, any experience at all? Um, please do. Got a lot to learn, don't we? Mm. Everybody okay? Look at a whole, in a whole different light. You know, when we've been studying like we should, you know, and it's the more we learn these things, the more like we're reading about the ark and, you know, in Genesis and you see the parallels, you, can't, you know. You can't you see it. There's so many things pointing right to Jesus right. all through the Bible. Yeah. It's amazing. It is. And again, you think about it, though. We have this fear of this Old Testament mm -hmm. and it is pointing to him and once you start to see it, like you said, it changes everything. And uh, and it's it's hard to understand why people go yeah. through stuff. Yeah, it is. It is, and that's the sometimes we can't comprehend it. We cannot. We we're not we're not called to comprehend it all. But what do we know? It's for good because it's from God. Amen. Guys, I appreciate y'all coming. And I say this all the time. It does my heart good. Okay. Guys, would you allow my young son here to say our uh, closing prayer? Uh, besides him being absolutely, uh, he was in Bible school one Thursday night, and he did not get to pray for us. But every service that he's been able to speak a word, this young man has prayed for us and ended our service. And I will tell you this, he's been at home sick, we've called him, and he's prayed for us. Oh, I've said this before. Uh, when he gets to be a little older, I don't know how I'm going to pick him up and it still not look crazy. But we're going to try. <laughs> Guys, thanks for coming. Don't leave. I'll hand you these out in just a second, okay? Coop, you ready, Bob? And don't scare these ladies on the way out. I can't promise that. Let's get a run. Let's do it, man. All right, man. Let's do it. Thank you, Jesus. Forget this. I'm already has a good day tomorrow. I'm probably has a good next week. I'm probably just because I'm probably trusting God. Amen. 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 All right. Now they're officially dismissed, right? <laughs